Augustine, in On Christian Teaching, wrote, To teach is a necessity, to delight is a beauty, to persuade is a triumph. Now of these three, the one first mentioned, the teaching, which is a matter of necessity, depends on what we say. The other two, on the way we say it. This is the Redeemed Imagination Podcast, a podcast of the Anselm Society on reenchanting the church. So last time we were talking about beauty. We'd gotten to the point where we and our hypothetical skeptical audience were on the same page with the idea that beauty uh, was essential to the Christian life. There's a there's a larger picture that we were starting to knock up against, which is, all right, well, if if beauty has not just a role, but a key role in helping us to encounter God, to understand the character of God, to understand uh, everything on some level, then as we look at church specifically, as we look at a worship service on Sunday morning, as we look at corporate prayer, as we look at uh, spiritual formation, catechesis, all of the things that uh, different traditions might associate with forming someone into someone else, forming uh, a pre-Christian, shall we say, into a Christian at a deeper and deeper level, a process of sanctification. In this context, what we start to get up against is, all right, well, if imagination then has a role, if beauty has a role, if I can walk into a cathedral and see the stories of the saints in the stained glass and see uh, the cruciform shape of uh, the church reminding me whose building I'm in and seeing the altar at the front and then find myself uh, initially separated from God, but then called forward to the altar uh, for communion, uh, invited into literally the life of God, then where how does all of that relate to what the your, your, your non-Gothic cathedral stereotype has historically seen as pedagogy, especially since the Reformation? Looking at sermons, looking at um, adult education, Sunday school, looking at uh, books about theology, looking at, in other words, person A saying verbally or saying in writing something to person B for the purpose of communicating truth to them. In many churches, that is the primary way that you are uh, receiving, that you are are being taken deeper into the story of Christ. Uh, In some churches, it may be the only way that the church is thinking consciously about doing that uh, with you. What is the relationship then? We've got formal, what we might call formal education. Is, is Is that a... term that we're comfortable with, formal and informal, direct and indirect. Uh, how, what's the interplay here? What does this look like? Yeah, great question. So maybe if we could start with the broadest situation, then bring it down to this. I think largely across history and traditions, we would agree that worship is the place where we encounter God. And by worship, I mean sort of formal worship, structured communal worship. Um, With the caveat that all f- formal communal Sunday morning worship is structured, whether you see it that way or not. Correct. Yeah. True. Yeah. Um, and that there's, as uh, I think we, were, we were referred to Ratzinger, uh, the last podcast, 
he, he very helpfully talks about worship versus a worshipful life, mm. which is, a, and they're of a piece, but they are distinct. So <clears throat> having said that then, uh, speaking as a pastor and thinking about communal formal worship where we encounter God and he does something amongst us, i.e. makes us one, that cannot happen outside of that setting. Mm-hmm. It's not that we don't encounter God outside that setting, but those particular things happen in that setting. So uh, the goal really is to love him. I don't mean to sound trite in any way, but I think pretty much across history, everyone would agree that to encounter God with love is then to know him in love and to be transformed by him. With that in, in place then, there's maybe we can talk about sermons and catechetical teaching in two ways, maybe one of teaching and one of proclamation. Or to go to Augustine's three pieces, teaching, delight, and persuasion. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. So Augustine would offer, as would, frankly, the the charismatic, which is this fancy word for sort of the gospel-centered teaching in the Bible, right, that has a particular content. Its content is defined, and the content is Christ born, incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and the spirit given to the church. So then those facts are important. Um, David Mills wrote a really good book on, on the church fathers and offered that one of the reasons that they might appear so grumpy is that they were really keen that we have the right picture of Jesus. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely intent that we have the because it is a matter of life and death. To have the wrong picture of Jesus is to follow someone out into the weeds, out into the darkness. To have the right picture of Jesus is to follow him into life and into light. And in not just today, not just eternal life, but also today. So if that, with some of that in mind, to love him, so to know him accurately is really important, right? To yes. know, that's why the Gnostic Gospels are, are not good, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they don't know Jesus accurately, and they lead us down a different path and away from life. So the intellectual piece is really important, and it's always been recognized that way. Um, but then there's the affective piece as well. If, if the ultimate sort of, if, if the big picture is to love him, well, then we also have to engender um, our hearts. And I think this is where sort of the truth and goodness and beauty pieces come in is so importantly. Now, then, can the intellect be beautiful? Yes, it can. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, can theology be beautiful? Abs- even transportative? Yes, it can. I know Calvin gets a bad rap, but honestly, I read his institutes as the devotions of a genius. As a guy who's passionately in love with God, he just happens to be a genius. So when he writes stuff, it comes out sort of genius level um, uh, as far as theology goes. So then preaching is a place where someone, yes, presents accurate information to be sure, but also proclaims who is God with a, a biblical assumption that the proclamation of the word, the reading, the proclamation, and the exhibition of the world, word carries something of the power of God itself. So Paul will say that, right? And that preaching it then from a place of loving God in particular brings a personal beauty to it that is effective. Now, all preaching, frankly, depends on the work of God, the Holy Spirit. This is the essential piece. There are many, many, many more articulate and literary preachers than, say, myself. Um, I think of Fleming Rutledge, one of my fra- favorite living preachers. She is so literate and literary. And yet any preacher should be praying fervently that, that the beauty and the nobility and the strength and the very presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit is inhabiting the words that are offered. 
and thereby providing an affective and also evocative, that is to say persuasion piece, effect on, on any listeners. Mm-hmm. So how is this, uh, I, I know the answer to this, but uh, Heidi might not in our audience certainly doesn't. Uh, in the context of your church then, as you've approached the spiritual formation of the congregation, not just through uh, Sunday morning worship, but adult education, catechesis, as you've, as you've thought about this idea, you use the term integrated spirituality. How does that play into all of this? Yeah, it's trying to be intentional about, again, back to the sort of Augustin, Augustinian definition. We do want to provide accurate information. None of us, frankly, are fully formed biblical people. We all have gaps in our knowledge. None of us are fully formed theological people. We all have gaps in our theology that we do well to fill, especially in a world that's full of so many different, varied, and nuanced opinions. Uh, To have the right information and more of it is important. And yet, uh, if the goal is to love God and love Christ, then we've got to engage that uh, affective piece. So at Holy Trinity and Integrated Spirituality, what we're attempting anyway, what we're attempting is to help people make the move from the data to the affective love or from the intellectual love of God. Let's put it that way. Let's not just make it too dichotomous. From the intellectual love of God to the affective love of God to a life then that displays that love in its actions and decisions. And so very simply, we, we kind of ask ourselves, how do we enliven imagination especially to take the truth of, say, this Sunday, it'll be Jesus incarnate, to take that into a place or that makes my heart sing, or um, lament, for that matter. But someplace where that, that knowledge is then engaged affectively in the depths of who I am personally. And this goes back to some of what we talked about a few episodes back when we were making a distinction between uh, worldview and imagination, where worldview is, we might define it as the the intellectual paradigm by which we make sense of everything around us versus a a Christian worldview, for example, versus a Christian imagination, um, which is much more along the lines of what you're talking about. It's much more along the lines of the fully orbed, full heart, full sensory engagement with everything around us. It's not just that we perceive something differently. It's that what we perceive makes us feel even something completely differently about it because it's not just our head that's been formed. Yeah, absolutely. So for example, let's talk about, um, and and feel free to jump in here as well, Heidi, but I want to talk about um, the idea that you've brought into this Narnian catechism approach where you've used a combination of scripture, historical theology, church history, the creeds, and oh, by the way, fiction to try to take a group of people over the course of a year or so, certainly not from A to Z, you don't do that in a class, but from one point to another in terms of not just their their knowledge, but their loves. And having been through that class, I, I, can, I can say, uh, and it's an earlier iteration, I'm sure it gets better every year, but uh, the but I remember getting to the end and, and, and covering some of the things that we talked about with regard to revelation and the life of the church for all eternity. And I remember just, being moved at a deeply emotional level in a way that I never had by, by those same texts because what we were talking about all of a sudden was, I, th- I think there's a notion sometimes implicit in, I, that I've seen in some churches, some Christian writers, of Christianity as this 
this massively unique, distinct thing that's completely different from everything that came before or will come after. It's sort of the way some people talk about miracles or the supernatural. It's the thing that breaks all of the rules uh, as opposed to uh, something that fixes all the rules, something that takes what we were always meant to be and brings it to its fullest completion. I saw that pattern, but I had, I had inhabited that pattern over the course of that class. So I wasn't just saying, oh, this is very interesting or isn't this exciting. I felt that. And you didn't just get me there with the scripture or the great commentaries on the scripture. You got me there with the fiction, with the imaginative elements, among other things. Yeah, I think that imaginative piece is, I think, critical. So part of what um, sparks this whole thing is when someone says, right, I get it here pointing at their head, but I don't get it here pointing at their heart, which pastorally speaking breaks your heart if you're after people to love Jesus, to be in love with him. So the thinking was, is there a way, hey, praise God for what you just said, Brian. You just made my day. Um, <laughs> First of all, this is, is it, I'm not trying to be trite or over-spiritualize things, but it really is a work of God the Holy Spirit. If God the Holy Spirit is God's personal and empowering presence, um, which I think is a great definition, then it is his presence that binds together, melds together all these things in such a way that, our, that we have the experience that you just spoke of, that we inhabit who is God, not just think about it. So is it, our essential question has been, is it possible to... Um, so Dorothy Sayers says, uh, the, the gospel is the greatest drama that's ever been known, right? How could it possibly be boring? And then she goes on to list the ways that the church has indeed made it boring. And um, in her wonderfully um, sort of pull the sword out of my side way. Um, <laughs> there's a, it should be exhilarating. The key, I think, is this imaginative piece. So is there a way to, and I love Peter Shackel's definition of Lewis's highest view of imagination, this idea that the imagination is that way that you connect ideas and concepts to make new holes by way of metaphor, myth, and story. Mm. Mm. Right? This amazing way you take disparate pieces to make a new and true whole. You're not just making it up. To recognize a new and true whole by myth and metaphor and narrative. I just, I really like that. So is there a way then to... Um, read fiction, in this case, the Chronicles of Narnia, in order to sort of prime our imaginations, right? To fall in love with the story, to, to make us smile, to open up our hearts, uh, to have our minds expanded. And then in that state, look at theology and go, oh, I love this because I've been in love with what I read in this fiction. And I take that love, I take that working in my heart and mind, I look at this theology and I say, oh, Right? The incarnation, it's not just that, whatever, he was unoriginate and also human and that, you know, kenosis and all that kind of good stuff, which I love, by the way. But it's like, I love this. And then beyond that, too, I love this God. Right? And so then, like you said, Lord willing, all of that becomes of a peace and we're inhabiting our love of God in these ways. That's kind of the idea. Why do you think it works? Uh, I'm looking at both Heidi White and Father Matt who are uh, with me today. Why do you think it works that way? Why do you think, I mean, I remember uh, just before we started the Anselm Society, uh, we went on a church retreat that uh, where all the teaching was done by 
the late Chris Mitchell. And the whole weekend was about re-enchanting the scriptures, learning to look at the scriptures with the same sort of enchanted eyes with which we see Narnia and Middle-earth. Why? Why is it that we're so naturally enchanted in the context of Narnia, but we need some sort of external force to bludgeon us about the head with some fiction or some music or something and to get us to see the scriptures that way? I love that question. Uh, this whole time that, that we've been talking and I, I've been thinking of uh, feasting. So Charlotte Mason, who is a late 19th century, early 20th century educator, she said that the mind is nourished by one thing and one thing only, and that is ideas. It's not nourished by facts. It's not nourished by lists. It's not nourished by uh, punishment um, and incentives. It is nourished by ideas, the form of things, the, the thingness of things, what the classic philosophers would have called the thing itself. And to that end, to the end of nourishing the mind, she gave the metaphor of education as a feast. You bring the children, you bring your students to a table laden with many forms of food, right? A feast is not one thing. It's not just turkey. It's mashed potatoes and gravy and uh, peas and carrots and rolls with lots of butter and pumpkin pie. That's a feast, right? And But the centerpiece of the feast is the beautiful turkey that comes out of the oven and it's fragrant and steaming and that's that's the thing that the meal is all about but it takes all of it beautifully prepared presented in community in order for it to become a feast otherwise it's just a meal right and so i think to your question brian that's what we're talking about right that the truth the gospel and again all metaphors fail at some point is the turkey that's the thing Right? That's what brings us to the table. But it is also necessary to have all these other nourishing and beautifully prepared dishes that add to that gathered around the table with your friends and family. That's what makes it a feast. And so what you are what you are doing through your, what do you call it, Narnian catechesis yeah. or whatever, yeah. I love, whatever you said was <laughs> wonderful, um, is that's in a sense what you are doing for the soul, for the spirit. Right, yeah, nice. Right? Yeah. And, and education and discipleship are the same thing. I will cling to that. So in discipling the soul of a child, we are all humans, and that's what our souls require, is to come to a feast, not just one thing. Is there a natural—one of the things I think about is, especially when you're talking about learning from—let's I mean, let's use the scriptures as an example. The scriptures do not— tell us everything we will ever know about God. Right. They do not even begin to come close to capturing the nature of God. But they're what he's given us. They're, they're, they're what we have as far as anything written down. That's the core. By his choice. By yes. his choice. Which is really important. And he, he makes a distinction in Scripture in Romans 1 between the general revelation and special revelation. And at, to your point about kerygma, that was a very big deal in the early church. You talked about the church fathers, that there is this given revelation that is the foundation of truth, that is the wellspring of truth. But there is no question in the minds of the church fathers that it wasn't the whole truth, the entire encompassment of everything there was to know and love about God. Sure. And even scripture itself speaks to that. 
the apostles use classical rhetoric, your point about persuasion, right? They reference the ancient poets that were contemporary to them. And that's in scripture. And Romans 1, again, praises special, or excuse me, general revelation, the revelation of nature and uh, the nature of reality. And so, but there is a special place that has to be said. There is a primary, a crowning place and the source of truth is scripture. And we must understand that that is the central point of the feast for every Christian. And it has to be, or you actually... Speaking of the artist and using a utilitarian argument, you won't make good art if you don't know scripture and God's mm-hmm. creation. Yeah, I forget who it was that said that the children's song, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you're talking about a source of authority, then that is a correct song. If you're talking about the nature of truth, it's an incorrect song. It's Jesus loves me, this I know, so the Bible tells me so. Huh. But either way, you're still with in, in scripture, you're still talking about. Uh, a plethora of different literary forms. You're talking about thousands of years of history. You're talking about completely different human authors. Is there just something about, isn't like, it's not like the Bible is a Cliff's Notes thing or, or, or a short story. If Maybe if it were a short story uh, or something similarly short, simple, straightforward, and focused in on just one little thing, maybe maybe we wouldn't need extra things quite so much. But um, I guess I'm particularly looking at you, Father Matt, since you are preaching from the scriptures every single week, uh, that is there is there just something about the natural mass and complexity of scripture that at any given time you might be speaking for 30, 45 minutes, but you're only going to touch on a, a tiny, not even a nugget, a, a lick of a nugget of one tiny little thing of what it is. And, and you're trying to, in, in that process through one touch point after another over and over and over, over years and years and years, hopefully, of interaction with an individual human being trying to get at this this whole. Is there something just naturally big and complex about scripture that invites help? Mm, that invites help. Right. Great question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the beauty and depth of the scriptures and just the sheer fun of them. It goes off your screen, doesn't it? I mean, it goes off your radar. It goes off the edges of your horizons. And so it's, and like Heidi said, whether it's literary genre or references to other works or does it invite help? I think it invites fullness, hmm. right? If the, if, if the scriptures are God's words witnessing to God, then it invites fullness. I don't think it invites something outside itself to make it better, but it invites this view that everything, I mean, even our noblest ideas, I would say, are derivative of God's character. Yes. Right? Absolutely. If that's true, then even our, our, some of our noblest ideas are derivative of Scripture in some way. Mm-hmm. So that gives you the place of an enormous breadth of beauty and strength and wonder and nobility and encounter. And yet God is also very particular, isn't he? He will deal with each one of the three of us personally mm-hmm. today. And so there is this place of, of personal encounter on, every, on any given Sunday, again, which you have to leave up to God, the Holy Spirit. It's not an excuse to be lazy. Um, it still takes lots of preparation and intention, but you sort of put it out there for the Holy Spirit to do with as he will. Right. Did that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it becomes easy to sort of forget 
how great the scriptures are, which is one of the, why one of the reasons I think it works. And you can speak to this, Brian. Maybe I'm wrong. But just a slow reading of almost any passage, uh, a slow, repeated reading of any passage. If you'll just linger with these passages, things sort of um, break out. Things sort of reveal. Things sort of come forth that are deep and beautiful and affecting. We do Genesis 1 and 2. And truly, I can say this invariably, somebody who's been reading Genesis 1 and 2 since flannel graph days um, goes, oh, I never saw that or heard that or felt that. So there's, some, there's these depths of the scriptures that come from this kind of reading and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's true. And other forms of art and literature contribute to that. Absolutely, yes. So I think, can you live just eating turkey all your life? Yes. Right. right? You can live like that. Who <laughs> would want to? <laughs> right? But the mashed potatoes and gravy bring out the depth yeah. of the flavor, right? Yeah, and a glass of wine. yeah, it's in a glass of wine, exactly. Uh, this we have an abundance of goodness, truth, and beauty in the created world. And so the more, you know, I teach, I, I'm teaching the Bible this year as literature to my, in the upper school at Journey School. And so one of the practices that we do with the Bible uh, is all the kids have to have a concordance in my class and I'll have them pick some kind of recurring image throughout the Bible. We make a list of it on the first day and I'll have them pick something, you know, like wine or darkness and light or water uh, or flame or something that occurs multiple times throughout the biblical narrative and then I have them look it up in different genres. So they look it up in a narrative genre, they look it up in a poetic genre, they look it up in the New Testament or in a rhetoric genre um, or in the, in the apocalypse, in the revelation. And the thing that happens to them as they see scripture from just, a, just, just, just that small change of perspective, it does re-enchant it to your question, Brian, that most of... Most of us have something that we love about the Bible that we want to pass down to the next generation with our kids or in teaching Sunday school or whatever. And that is a, that's really profound, but we have to also let people encounter the scripture through multiple different ways. Something just as simple as that, that, that gives that moment of the inconsolable secret, that moment that's like, this is a beautiful book. This is it's unbelievable that they are that hundreds of years apart people use the same symbol to describe the truth. They weren't literate, they didn't even have these old scrolls. Like just just that looking at scripture through an imaginative lens is so profoundly moving towards God. And there's also an element of it I was hinting just now that well, asking just now if there are things about scripture itself that invite I use, the, I use the term help, but invite, uh, you know, the mashed potatoes. Mm -hmm. But but there's also an element of us. What are right. we bringing to it? What you bring, Absolutely. what you bring to a piece of turkey on day 49 right. is different to what you bring to that just as good piece of, theoretically, just as good piece of mm -hmm. turkey uh, on on day one. But you've changed in that yes. time. The if, if, if somebody made a, a fresh, delicious, amazing turkey for you every single day, it, it would be just as good. But you would have mm -hmm. uh, changed. And there may be parts of you that have learned to appreciate turkey that didn't appreciate it on day one. Or, right. But there also may be parts of you that just go, <sighs> right. I've seen that turkey before. Right. <laughs> right. And, and something needs <laughs> to happen sure. to make you taste it 
differently, see it differently. it differently. The turkey is still right. the same. The truth is still the same. Which goes to the liturgies of the church, right? That's why we go through cycles of feasting and fasting and different ways. When you're when you're looking at Jesus as a young man is different than when you're looking at him as 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 the resurrected Lord of all creation. Not and it's he's not different. Mm. Right? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But because our minds are so finite, we train them to see different things at different times. And then somehow God unifies that within us. And that's to your point. And that's why I think the liturgies of the church are one. That's one of the many reasons why they are so formative and necessary and important. I think you make a good point, Brian. A lot of it, we are different people, but it also... Much of this is how do we come to um, to mm, the feast? That's good. Right? Just imagine the family feast, right? Do I come to the feast? Oh, man, same turkey, right? Same song, second verse, third verse, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or do we come expectant that um, there's something that's going to happen at this feast that I need to encounter, right, that I need to enter? Right. And looking with expectancy, whether it's the liturgy or the, the preaching or the catechesis or the being made one with one another by the God of the Holy Spirit, uh, the way we come, it counts for a lot. So not too long ago, I had somebody say, you smile after a while, right? You, I could just tell from his demeanor that he was sort of like parsing my sermon, hmm. uh, theologically parsing the sermon. You could just sort of tell. And afterwards he said, well, I know what I believe. I wanted to know what you believe. And I thought, well, okay. In, in some ways, that's fair enough. We want to be sure that we're in a healthy place. On the other hand, um, what did you miss because you didn't come in saying, Lord, what do you want me to believe? Hmm. Right? Lord, what do you want me to know? What do you right. want me to hear? What do you want me to feel? What all did he miss because he came in looking to parse the sermon so that he could be sure that we had the right theology? Is there a place for that to be sure? Right, Because there's healthy and unhealthy places. And yet. It is not the entirety of the Christian pilgrimage when to we the come, kingdom of God. Yeah, when we come yes. into anything with the question of, ah, oh, Another feast, excellent, right? What am I going to get out of this cup of wine this time that I didn't get last time, or the turkey, or the... Um, there's a piece of expectancy that, that I think God really honors um, right. when we come to encounter him. Mm-hmm. And to turn that point on its head and take it in a completely different direction, that's sort of the opposite of the direction you wanted to take it in. Uh, <laughs> circling back to how we use other forms of teaching to to assist the formal teaching, how we do different things to, I I think sometimes uh, in in a church context, we use the term prepare your heart for worship a little bit too lightly. Um, Sometimes I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll be, I'll I'll be in a church context and they'll, they'll say, we're going to sing a song to prepare your heart for worship. Gosh, that's a lot of pressure on a song. (laughs) Um, But one of the heartbreaking things I think where churches can sometimes go wrong in trying to engage the arts better uh, is by catering to the arts and the artists so much, going essentially going from one extreme to the other, going to the point where they're, where the artists are ignored, forgotten, marginalized, or just not quite understood, to a point where they're given so much license, so much freedom, uh, in the absence of order, in the absence of, of, of telos, in the absence of intentionality, and disconnected enough from the larger mechanisms of the church, the larger purposes of the church, the, the larger point of a, 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 a sermon or a, a scripture reading to the point 
point where you end up with artists and artists' communities, and we've talked about this in other contexts off the air, where the art is valued for its own sake, the artist is valued for its own sake, and truth has become disconnected. Not necessarily the appreciation for truth perhaps hasn't become disconnected. The artist still thinks he's right. And the artist still still thinks that something he's criticizing is wrong, but he's operating parallel to the church at best uh, rather than in the church. That's great, Brian. I think that's often true. And I wonder if some of that is goes to what kind of the core of this conversation that we've been having. I would posit that there is already art in the church, mm-hmm. right? Amen. Art is the form of the liturgy. Art is the Bible. Is. Art is the, the sacred songs that we sing. It isn't necessarily that we need more art in the church. I'm not opposed to that. But some of what we need is for people who are aware of that to open our eyes within the congregations to see what is already there. And that is... You know, that's one of those, this is a job for for a sacred dance. And sometimes it's, <laughs> this is the job for a sermon, right? That there's room at the table for all forms of goodness, truth, and beauty. And they all contribute to the feast. So if you try to put the mashed potatoes in the middle and it's not, right? right. That yeah. it is not. Right. And so that artists must be anchored in the historic faith in order to do good in the church. In the church, right. Right. We're not trying to create romantics who are expressing themselves. Right. We are asking mature Christians to connect the congregation with the goodness, truth, and beauty that is already there, and then to contribute to that culture and within the church as well. And they're appropriate to the the whole, right? Yes. And to be content with whatever that piece is. Right. Which isn't so easy. Um, what you just said, hi, that's amazing. I want, now, you know, I've been doing this almost 15 years. Oh, well, we're always learning. But how to help people learn to come to the artistic nature of the liturgy in an artistic way. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Not adding stuff, but just investing what's already there. Now, I see this happen a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. When I see people with tears in their eyes during the confession, I know something's going on. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. When I say somebody's saying the Lord's Prayer and their face is... is Yearning as they make those, that make those uh, petitions, that they're engaging in somewhat, right? So mm-hmm. there's, but it's a great question to ask yourself: How do we? Because there, it is a danger. Um, uh, the rote recitation is a danger. Right. It is. It's not the whole of it, like some people want to make it, mm-hmm. but it is. It is a danger. And so, how to help people encounter the artistic nature of the liturgy in artistic ways? I think is a great point and a great responsibility then for church leadership. Right. All of church leadership, right? Mm-hmm. So thinking about this in terms of a long-term, we, we've talked about this largely in the context of formal worship the last few minutes, backing up a little bit to the larger picture of spiritual formation, where the end goal is not simply to have, not simply to enter church on Sunday or enter the, the sermon portion of church on Sunday with my heart in the right place, but to enter heaven with my heart in the right place, to be sanctified over time. I mean, first of all, I think I like that I start hearing the term spiritual formation kicked around more often by not just pastors and theologians. I know growing up, I would hear the term teaching a lot, mm-hmm. and there was 
singing and there was teaching and right. there was then sure. life. And these are three separate things. Or maybe the singing is there to soften me up for the teaching in some sort of emotionally manipulative way. But spiritual formation is this larger thing. It's not just about information being passed on. It's not even just about being inspired in a given um, moment, but the notion of being changed from something into something else or into more of the same thing over time and more fully the same thing. So to say that two things are distinct or different from one another is not to say that they're opposites. Of course. Right? And not to say that there's, uh, there isn't some kind of important connection between them, even an overlap. So art and sermon are two different things, two different forms of spiritual formation. But they are not opposed to one another, and neither can they not overlap one another. But in saying how they are distinct— that I'm going to pass over to you, Father Matt, because I want to hear your definition of sermon. Maybe we'll pass it on yeah. the table. I'm curious, like you know, we're we're defining our terms. How would you? Yeah, how would you differentiate them as a as a practitioner? Yeah, um, historically and biblically, really, preaching, sermon, is that act that happens within the community's worship, who's coming to give glory to God, and so it is a proclamation of the scriptures intended to give glory to God and to edify, often to teach, but certainly to edify, to lift up, to provide an integrated expression for the people of God. So you can't preach a sermon to non-Christians. That may sound, I don't mean, I don't mean to sound whatever. I hope that doesn't raise sort of like— It's a distinctively Christian reception is what you're saying. Well, offering and reception, Yeah. right? Yeah. Now then, can a non-Christian sit in a church and hear a sermon? To be sure. Right. But that there's a proclamation that happens within the organic worship and presence of God himself, offering ourselves to light and engaging him personally and in the moment of which the the reading of the word and the proclamation of it is an integral piece. That's a sermon. Mm -hmm. So— that then, so this is really interesting, right? There are brilliant preachers out there. Mm-hmm. And yet there are tens of thousands of preachers. So do I have to preach like Fleming Rutledge to be mm-hmm. an artistic preacher? I hope not. Or else my people are sunk, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> <laughs> so what then, this again becomes, um, kind of brings up this Holy Spirit piece. Mm-hmm. The mind of God living with our own hearts, living within us, responding to God himself, by the proclamation and the exposition of the word. So back to your feast. Um, Does every sermon have to be Thanksgiving dinner? Mm -hmm. Well, again, I hope not for the sake of my people. (laughs) Can almost every sermon be a really good meal that draws us towards one another and towards God? Well, I hope so, because I think that's about what we get at Holy Trinity and most churches. I I mean, one of the things that comes to mind as I was looking at... um, Richard Hooker yesterday, uh, Richard Hooker, the Anglican theologian, there was a, a quote that we talked about opening the episode with that was a little bit too dry to be an inspirational open to the episode, but 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 he said, uh, adapted slightly for modern English, men are edified either when their minds are led to the consideration of some truth that demands their attention or when their hearts are moved with any suitable affection. Therefore, not only speech, by which in this context he means sermons, but also 
many different sensible or sensory means have always been thought necessary for this purpose. And he goes on to say that uh, of these, he thinks that the eye is the, mo- the organ by which to best make a deep and lasting impression. So he says, we don't just say this, 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 and this. We physically do the Eucharist. Well, for a variety of reasons, not just mm-hmm. so that you can see it, but we also do the Eucharist. We also kneel with our knees. We also dress these ways. We, we also children when we baptize them. Mm-hmm. But basically what he does is he creates this, uh, th- this picture, this dynamic, where it's less, ah, we have the sermon over here and then we have everything else over here that is teaching you something. It's that we have this ecosystem by which we yes. engage every part of who you are to, to, to show you something and to pull you into something. And a reality in which the pastor is, is up on this massive stage all by himself having had everything else stripped away from him or almost everything else stripped away from him that you could see to communicate the truth or hear to communicate the truth or smell to communicate the truth. And he's then told, well, they've been living in sin all week. You have 45 minutes. Fix it. Fix the problem, right? That that is just... Well, it's ridiculous and and, and ineffective because we are multifaceted people. So... um, Again, to go back to the feasting analogy, what Charlotte Mason says about education is if you bring a child to the feast, they will take what they need Mm. from the feast. Mm. And every time they sit down, they will gather a different set conglomeration on their plates and take from that. Unless they're me, in which case it was just the cheesecake. Right. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, their moms might have to make them take. That's right. They may need to be mad at someone. There's a lot. And I think that actually is a really important thing to say, that... Part of what makes a sermon a sermon is the is its place in the worship. Form contributes to meaning, right? And so, you if I go stand on a street corner and say exactly the same thing to random strangers passing by, it is no longer a sermon. It's just a speech I'm making on a on a street corner. What makes it a sermon is that it has a set place within the liturgical life of the church for a certain purpose. And I'm thinking now about art. Flannery O'Connor was asked, well, you know, what does your story mean, right? which lots of people ask that about Flannery O'Connor, but her response was, I can't tell you, that's why I wrote a story. Mm. If I had just had one message, some one thing to say, I would have written an essay. So that the purpose of art, the purpose of art, the telos of art really is that, right? To say a thing that needs to be said within a certain form. A poem is a poem and not a story, right? And a sermon, is, in a sense, the essay form of that, of the spiritual life. Here is, and I understand it can have art in it, but it does have a message and a truth to convey that is within set parameters, and that is a beautiful and a good thing. But I may take that same information and teach it differently, though, at what we call our teaching community time. Right, right. Right? I may take that that same text Mm -hmm. and present it in a different way because it's a different context. Or you may do what you did for this Lent in the church and hand the scripture readings and the collects to a poet and say, write something that will help us to, to meditate on this right. more deeply. But that doesn't go in the sermon place in the liturgy. Right. Right. Like right. that's, and that is really important. Yeah, like to say this, you know, to get to the sermon point in the liturgy and to bring up someone doing sacred dance, that I think is, it doesn't fit. That's right. not the right place for it. And that matters within the life of the church, that we have that. We need that. Our, our, our hearts need to be oriented towards receiving teaching from a sacramentally ordained leader of the church. Mm-hmm. And the that, dan- The yes. dancer has not been ordained to 
uh, the the full the full authority mm-hmm. of the church in terms of teaching through 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 the dance. Right. Was, so a sermon has a narrow yeah. definition, and that isn't to take away from its value. That's to add to it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's actually better, I think. Yes, right? I completely it, it, it agree. Because then what's the bigger what's the bigger context, which then mm-hmm. takes you to the beauty of the entirety of the thing. Right. Right? Which so is why it doesn't really count thing. as a sermon if you go for a hike and you have a good spiritual experience with God. Right. I mean, that's not a sermon. That's your right. you took a walk and that's you a really had a good spiritual thing. experience, right. which is yes. a good thing. But it's not. But it's not a sermon. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah, Frederick Beener says, you know, sermon. I'm paraphrasing. I can't say anything as well as he writes it. He could write the phone book beautifully, but mm-hmm. um, he does offer. He says, you know, something like sermons mean don't preach to me. Don't give me your trite, useless platitudes, that kind of thing. He goes, uh, decent words don't get into that trouble by themselves. Right. <laughs> and so sermons That's must right. have been misapplied and misunderstood at some point, mm-hmm. which is to say then that there is this better application. And I think seeded in and integrated into historic worship is exactly the right the right thing. Right. Wow. And, um, yeah. and I'll just say one more thing on yeah. spiritual formation. I'm, I'm glad to hear that it uses well. Um, from Joel, we, we heard at Ash Wednesday, right, who recommended fasting and, um, and um, particular prayers and confession to um, Matthew, where Jesus, again, assumes that we're fasting and praying and giving to the poor. Right. There have always been ways, practices that we know that sort of open ourselves to God in, in better ways than less. Um, but there's this piece where it's kind of what we're after in integrated spirituality or learning catechism. There's this place where you sort of, and I don't mean to get too fuzzy about it, but you kind of bring your entire life to bear with the entire life of God in the scriptures and through art and through other things. And, and they become so intermingled uh, as to be a kind of a new thing, a new whole. And they're so fully intermingled. You're not just doing the disciplines. The disciplines help you get there. You're not just learning new things. Learning new things gets you there. But you're sort of throwing yourself into the air and meeting God there, if I can use that, that thing. And then there's this mingling, this intermingling really, this union that Paul calls it. What Calvin would call union is not quite the same as what you guys would call theosis, Heidi, mm-hmm. in the Orthodox Church. But they're not far apart. Mm-hmm. They're not quite the same, but they're not far apart. Right. There's this organic union that happens that now we're talking spiritual formation. Right. And then worship, corporate worship and the worshipful life become of a piece, what you were saying earlier, Heidi. Um, and there's not this big def- this big thing. There's one that accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish and feeds into the other, where the other accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish and feeds back into the other. And there's this back and forth the, between worship and the worshipful life that creates a whole new life that's worth living, right? I mean... <laughs> Can we drop a mic right now? <laughs> that's that so good. That was fabulous. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. That's good. Like, we are out of time, so we will end it on that. <laughs> okay. Note. On the high note. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, both of you, and we will you. Thanks, uh, look forward to joining the rest of you in conversation soon.